from out of nowhere. From out of nowhere. Oh, hello. And uh, this is Overnight on ABC Radio. And uh, you're with Rod Quinn. Well, at this time on a uh, Friday morning, we crossed in the United States. Sometimes it's with Tim in New York. And every other week, it is Celeste Katzmaston in Boston, Massachusetts. And Celeste is with us this morning live on the air. Celeste, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Oh, thank you so much for being with us. Ah, dear. Now, this is straight out of the file of elections have consequences, isn't it? That um, the Republicans, through the will of the people, uh, have the uh, they have uh, the majority in the House of Representatives in the United States. And one of the things that happens there is that they have the right to appoint who's on committees, and they then chair those committees. And so, all sorts of people that you might think might be slightly inappropriate. Uh, have been um, put on various committees. One of them is Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, she was famous, well, famous before she was elected as a QAnon conspiracy theorist. She is now on the Homeland Security Committee. So how? what's the reaction to that been? And why should people be outraged, perhaps, if they are? I think that people are really sort of ranging from shocked to appalled, uh, maybe other reactions out there, but just really astonished and and confused by or saddened by the fact that somebody who is uh, an election denier, uh, somebody who has just adhered to all sorts of really whacked out, there's no other word, really whacked out conspiracy theories, um, is now going to be on a committee that's responsible for overseeing the safety and security of the United States. This is literally somebody who thought that um, uh, some sort of like secret Jewish conspiracy caused a wildfire in California with space lasers. Yeah. Like, so I mean, this uh, is a person who's now going to be responsible for. Yeah, that's right. She said that. The question is, does she believe it? Because, and and look, whether she believes it or not, maybe doesn't matter because she said it and, and therefore other people believe it. But quite often, when some of these extremists do get put on the stand in court cases, we're talking about, um, you know, people like Alex Jones uh, from InfoWars or some of the, the hosts of uh, Fox News, they come out under oath and say, look, you know, I didn't believe anything what I was saying. So I wonder whether she's the same. Does it does it really Doesn't matter, matter exactly, at yeah. some point? I mean, yeah. do you want somebody no. do you want somebody in a leadership position in the United States Congress who has openly said, whether or not they believe it, but has openly talked about executing democratic politicians, killing them. No. Having them killed. Exactly. That's a problem. I, I understand why people are worried about this. Well, in fact, it's, it's, that's almost happening too because there was a losing Republican candidate just this week who would hire people to go around and shoot Democrats. I mean, this is there's a major difference between the two parties. The extremist part of the Republicans have taken over. It's, it's no longer a fringe right of a centrist party. The fringe has become the mainstream and she's one of them. 
Right. And, you know, there is a slight mitigating effect, perhaps. It's still very disturbing that somebody who thinks that 9-11 was orchestrated by the U.S. government is now in this position of power. But, okay, the voters have spoken. This is who they want, representing them, at least for their district. She will be one person on a larger committee. She will not be setting U.S. border policy or something like that. But at the same time, yeah, this is this sort of speaks to the situation in U.S. politics right now. And as you know, we just went through a really tumultuous and historic uh, selection process for the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. And, you know, he's trying to sort of corral or placate uh, people on the more extreme fringes of the party, people who are more centrist relative to Republican philosophy, um, trying to find a place for everybody. But I think this one really jumped out at people uh, as as just beyond a mismatch of of deep concern that somebody is going to be put in this kind of position of power. And will then be privy to a lot of secret documents and and, and secret, uh, you know, or uh, undercover uh, details about threats to the United States and things like that. Right, right. So, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. Uh, You know, this is somebody, you know, has mentioned, you know, this is somebody who's asked for a pardon after the January 6th insurrection. Mm. This is somebody who is who has said basically that if she had been running the show uh, on, you know, the attack on the U.S. Capitol, quote unquote, we would have won. Is that somebody that uh, you are right to be concerned about entrusting major national security questions and sensitive information to? Yeah. Okay. All right. And she's just one of several uh, controversial figures who, who have been placed on these important uh, committees. The thing is, there are more members than committees. I mean, she didn't have to be put on one, but I presume in return for a vote for Kevin McCarthy to for Speaker, this is how these people get rewarded. Right. I mean, these are one of the powers of the Speakership is that you can hand out these sort of plum assignments, these these appointments onto certain committees based on what the person is interested in, where they want a platform, where uh, they think they can do the most for their district. You know, lots of different reasons mm. why people want these things. But um, this this is something that uh, comes down to the leadership, sure. Yeah. All right. However, there is a good side to the news about the, uh, the, the, the Congress, and that is the number of threats made against senators and and representatives actually fell for the first time since Donald Trump was elected. Uh, It's still an extraordinary number. Seven and a half thousand investigations the Capitol Police uh, opened to uh, look into threats against members of Congress, but that was down from nine and a half thousand the previous year. Right. So the numbers have been going up uh, since 2017, which is when, of course, Donald Trump took office uh, steadily. But last year they dropped for the first time. But, yeah, still an extraordinarily high amount, you know, historic high. And some of this is fueled by social media where people can hide behind a fake Twitter handle or behind some other, uh, you know, technological cloak, so to speak, and say crazy things about what they would like to do to their congressperson or a congressperson they don't like. Um, You know, are all these threats going to be acted upon? Certainly not. But 
do they have to be investigated? Is it a cause for concern? Definitely so. All right. So uh, in 2017, it was 4,000. So it's basically more than doubled in the last four or five years. Um, it got up to 8,600 in 2020, and it's, well, finally starting to go down, but still, I don't know how many threats we'd have. I mean, obviously, we'd have a lot of threats against uh, our own politicians, but I don't know that it was, um, I don't know that it was that many. Um, all right. Let's uh, move on then to uh, Donald Trump. Okay, so... Uh, you know, he's running for president. He's made no secret of that. He's he's about to start making speeches in early voting states or states that have early primaries. And he's already in the lead, isn't he? Well, in, on the Republican side. Right. Well, there have been a bunch of polls and, and Americans certainly love their political odds making and predictions and polling. So this is one poll out of many polls. But this shows the important thing I think about this poll is that it shows him in the lead, but with a, a fairly substantial lead uh, over the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, who has been painted by quite a lot of people as potentially the future of the post-Trump Republican Party. And this one has Trump way out ahead of DeSantis. Interestingly, of course, Trump is now a resident of Florida, having uh, having ditched New York over uh, some of the uh, the questions about his business dealings and and so on. Um, but the other interesting thing about this poll is, again, it's one poll, but it shows Trump ahead of DeSantis in a primary matchup, a Republican primary matchup. But it shows DeSantis slightly ahead of Joe Biden in a general election matchup, where Trump is slightly behind Biden in this potential 2024 general election. So again, one poll, always want to take these things in context and with a grain of salt. But, you know, certainly shows that DeSantis has much more uh, currency compared to some of the other names that they've thrown out there, like Mike Pence or Ted Cruz or Nikki Haley or Liz Cheney. These people are in, uh, you know, absolute single digits, not really a factor at this point. So at the moment, Trump leads DeSantis by 17 points. But I mean, you know, we're still, you know, what, a year away from uh, any voting actually taking place. Uh, but as you say, DeSantis leads Biden by three points, whereas Biden leads Trump. So people have got to decide, who do I vote for? Someone I like or someone who's going to win? You know, and that's often the decision that uh, voters have to make when they are confronted with uh, multiple um, candidates for their party, isn't it? Right. And so we don't want to put too much stock in every individual poll. We I can put no at, stock in it. You know. It's interesting to talk about, but I just, I don't take any notice of polls anymore, really. Uh, well, I think what we're looking at here in a very general sense is that, you know, beyond sort of the the chattering class of people like me who are obsessed with this kind of stuff and read about it all the time and people like you who, you know, read about it and talk about it on, on air all the time. I think that this looks at sort of where people are. DeSantis hasn't uh, declared, by the way, you know, DeSantis is not formally a candidate for president, but he's certainly being talked about a lot in the bubble. But outside the bubble is, you know, what we're seeing generally from a lot of polling is that people do have an interest in DeSantis in his style of politics, which is not full scale Trumpism, but incorporates a uh, a lot of aspects of Trumpism, but also mixes uh, a lot of success, frankly, a lot of political success and accolades in his own state, despite some policies that people find uh, 
of concern or or too hands off. Uh, and certainly there have been issues with him uh, not cooperating with mainstream media and only with partisan media or withholding public information, uh, deregulation that might lead to problems. So interesting thing to look at. But, you know, we're, we're definitely keeping tabs on this already, even though we are pretty far out from from the next presidential election. Yeah, we're a year away from the primaries, though. And there's going to be a shake-up with which primaries come first. It look, you know, maybe New Hampshire, which is a very white state, is going to lose its status as first of the nation. Maybe or the Iowa caucuses again. It's important. It was important for Barack Obama. He proved that a, a black man could win in a white state. That was really important. But I think Joe Biden is looking to change which primaries go first. And we're looking at, you know, you'd be looking at somewhere like South Carolina, which has a much uh, higher black population, which I think was the the state that gave him the the impetus uh, after he he began really badly when he won the election. Yeah, this is something that people have been talking about for a very yes, long time. I know. It's not just a, this there's like a whole yeah, exactly. There's like a whole industry around yeah. first in the nation primary. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. So anyway, we'll see because I think there was a law enacted that you know if South Carolina decided to have it on the second of January, New Hampshire would have theirs on the first of January. It's just who knows. We might be getting to a point where all of a sudden these primaries start happening the year before the election, but we shall see. Now. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it was uh, Martin Luther King Day uh, this week. It's public holiday for much of the United States. Um, there's always, you know, a lot of remembrance about the man. And in Boston, in your town, there was a new statue. Well, I wouldn't say statue. It's a sculpture, really, more than a statue, unveiled. It was supposed to represent a moment between him and his wife, Coretta, after he was uh, released from jail, but boy, it looks like they got it wrong. Could you describe it for us? It's. I will try. I will try. Essentially what it is, is it is a depiction of uh, Dr. King and his wife, Coretta Scott King, hugging, uh, embracing each other. Um, the thing about it, though, is it only shows their arms. Mm. There's no head. There's yeah. no body. There's no legs. So you have these arms sort of entwined with the elbows kind of resting on the ground as the base or the the anchor of the sculpture and some people say that you know it's it's a very sort of i don't know it, it it's sort of iconic but it's it's also sort of um you know it, it's not it's not a straight no. up depiction like a photograph no. it, it's more sort of theoretical but some people just say it looks like dismembered body parts that it's offensive or that it's ugly or even uh, that it's obscene some people say oh i wouldn't go that far but i would say it's ridiculous where is it uh and uh, i mean boston with all due respect it was a very racist town it may still be i don't know but uh it, it you know this it's got a lot to apologize about is there a link between dr king and boston and why was it unveiled and where is it in the city yeah it's right on the boston common uh, it's part of the uh, Freedom Rally Memorial Plaza, um, which you know honors this the big 1965 rally that was led by Dr. King. Okay. Um, Boston is the city where uh, Dr. King and Coretta Scott King met, oh, okay. um, and they were studying here. He did his uh, doctorate at Boston University, so okay. they do have uh, a real tie to the city. But uh, you know this sort of newest addition to Boston Common, which is perhaps the most famous public space in the city, has uh, got a lot of people talking. Beautiful part of the town. 
it kind of separates the historic part from, you know, other beautiful parts. It's a really, really lovely. It's easily walkable too. It's not a huge place like, um, it's like Central Park. It's it's a it's a much more uh, it's a much smaller part of the city, but it's a really lovely part of it. Um, anyway, they're going to keep it up. There's also that statue of Dr. King in Washington that created controversy because they had the quote on the the statue wrong, didn't they? Yeah, I mean that statue is more. Um, uh, I think would would be you would call it more traditional. Yeah, you it know, looks it's like sort it. of very very classic, very yeah. classic. This one is a little bit more conceptual. I think is the word I was looking for. Fair enough, too. And finally, this morning, now in the U.S., there's Time Magazine, which is very well known. There's Newsweek, which has had its moments over the years. And then there's a third one, which people never really talk about. It's called U.S. News and World Report. But unlike, say, the Time Person of the Year, the big issue every year for U.S. News and World Report is when they rank the colleges of the United States. Now, this is a big, big deal. In England, it's it's the Times, I think. They do uh, all the universities of the world. They rank the top 200. U.S. News and World Report do the U.S., uh, and a lot of well, some universities are now starting to say we don't want to be part of it and we're going to pull out of it. How can they pull out of it? Well, they can just refuse to submit information or share information oh. for it. Uh, basically, the rankings are supposed to be, and they are a big deal, the rankings are supposed to be sort of uh, beyond uh, feeling or reputation of how good a school is. But it takes into account a lot of very specific factors, like the number, the ratio of students to faculty and, uh, you know, other major qualities or academics, or maybe it's awards, or maybe it's a pedigree or, or location, or, you know, lots and lots of different factors. But it's essentially supposed to tell you what the best schools are ranked from one to however many. And some of these schools are pulling out um, not because they don't like to have, uh, you know, the publicity or the ranking or whatever, the attention, but rather because uh, there's been a lot of questions about the ranking system, including um, schools ostensibly providing false information, inflating their oh, data dear. to appear more favorably in the rankings or uh, the rankings having computational issues that don't really give a true picture by their own system of uh, how schools stack up. And as you can imagine, there's very, very tight competition in certain sectors, you know, way at the top or, you know, you know, certain regions, certain types of schools and every little decimal point might might change. You know, it's sort of a, like a race for valedictorian or salutatorian at a high school or a college or something like that. So there have been some questions about how accurate uh, and reflective of reality the rankings are. And some very big schools, including most recently Harvard Medical School here in uh, in Massachusetts, have just said, you know what, we're, we're not we're not doing this. We, we don't think this really provides an accurate picture, even if they have us at number one or number two. Um, that it's just not worth our time. And the question then becomes, if they're pulling out and if other schools are pulling out, will everybody pull out? Are the rankings reliable? Are they useful anymore? Will they keep doing them? Because they are a very, very big deal in the United States or have been historically. Yeah, and everyone buys that issue of the magazine too. That's going to yeah. be a big... Yeah, and they have them for law schools, medical schools, yeah. undergraduate, you know, everything. Hmm. All righty. Well, I mean, there are lists. It's not They're not the only ones who list the best colleges in the US and I don't know I mean it's a big deal for some of them but yeah if they're giving the wrong information then surely the magazine needs to uh, look into a better way or a different way of determining 
you know, what this list might look like. I think that the appeal of some of these things was obviously the competition and making jokes about whether your school was ranked higher or lower than somebody else's. But it seemed it seemed that the appeal of it was that uh, you can get a feeling about a school or somebody who went there can tell you that or they can have promotional materials. But they, you know, ostensibly had brought it down to a science. We mm. have used the math, the numbers to figure out which schools are best and why. And now there are a lot of questions about whether that system is really reliable and worthwhile. All righty. Fair enough. Uh, Celeste, thank you very much, as always. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Celeste Katzmaston in Boston, Massachusetts.